0: This past week, I saw this devastating clip of a Wheel of Fortune episode. (laughs) If you don't know what Wheel of Fortune is, it's a game show where contestants have to guess a phrase by guessing individual letters one at a time. So if you know the game Hangman, it's like Hangman, but for money. So once you guess enough letters, then you can guess the whole phrase. So this episode of Wheel of Fortune, I think was a college edition. And there was a freshman from Indiana University playing, and he spun the wheel, and he has a chance to win a million dollars. So he gets to guess several letters in a row until he actually completes the entire phrase. And all he has to do is just read the phrase, and he wins the million bucks, right? So he gets his chance, and he says, mythological hero, Achilles." Oh. <laughs> And yes, there is that awkward silence like there is now. And I think Pat Sajak probably heard from his producer in his ear and says, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. We can't accept that. So it's the next person's turn. And she says, mythological hero, Achilles. And she wins it. Oh, devastating. Here is someone right on the edge of victory and they collapse in defeat. Today in the book of Numbers. God's people are right on the edge of the promised land. They had been slaves for 400 years to the most powerful nation of the earth at the time. God had heard their groans at their slavery. He had displayed his greatness and grace. He rescued them. He fed them in the wilderness. He prepared them for life with him. Now the finish line is in sight. They're not so close they can taste it. They're so close that they actually taste it produce from the land. But they collapse at the finish line and they refuse to go in. Today we encounter a devastating story. You know, their bad example provides many a lesson for us. Even the New Testament applies this story in lots of different ways. But maybe most of all, the Israelites' bad example shows us the importance to persevere to the end, to press on. Now when you hear that Press on. Maybe you're like me. And when you hear press on, you think, well, that probably means i got to find it somewhere deep within me just to grind it out. To put my head down, to grit my teeth, and to keep moving forward. Well, if that's what you think when we say press on, then what you need today is just a motivational pep talk. But in Numbers, just as in all the Bible... Perseverance takes on a different tone. To press on doesn't first mean to press on in work. To press on first means to press on in faith. We continue to believe. We continue to believe that the God who saved us will sanctify us. And that the God who sanctifies us will glorify us. The Israelites' collapse in the wilderness reminds us that faith is not just a one-time decision. Faith is a lifetime of trust. We continue the same way we began, by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the main idea or the main takeaway from Numbers chapters 13 and 14 is that we are to press on in faith, trusting that God will accomplish his purposes and hasn't left us to ourselves. From these chapters, we'll find four ways we can press on in faith in God. We press on knowing God's word is enough. We press on in faith by focusing on God first. We press on in faith by clinging to God's character and God's plan. We press on in faith by repenting in response to God's word. Point number one. We press on in faith by knowing that God's word is enough. If you're not there yet, please turn with me to numbers chapter 13. We'll read a good chunk of the chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, "Send men to spy out the land from Canaan, the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them." So Moses sent, from them the, sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Then goes on to list men from each tribe of Israel. Pick it back up in verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is. And whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities that they dwell in are, in, in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out over the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Labo Hamath. They went into the Negev and cave to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. And that place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Let's stop there. Just to bring ourselves up to speed, some of what we've just seen. Israel was camped at what would have been the southwest corner of the promised land. At God's instruction, Moses tells these 12 representatives from Israel to traverse all of the land, south to north, and they'd come back. This was 250 miles each way, so no wonder it took 40 days. And remember, these aren't just representatives, they're called spies. This is a clandestine operation. They aren't going throughout the land telling all the people who live there, hey guys, we're scoping out the joint because God's getting ready to vacate you. <laughs> no. Moses tells the spies that he wants a report on what kind of place this is, what kind of people live there. This is their mission if they choose to accept it. Well, they do, and their mission is successful. They see places, they see people, they even bring back produce. And if you look at verse 23 of Numbers 13, we're meant to be stunned by the description of this grapevine, right? This vine is so big, it takes, they have to put it on a pole, it takes two guys to carry it. Now, one commentator on this passage observes that these would have been wine grapes, that's the word used. So this indicates that this land would that they're entering would bring them great joy. They would have had the impression we are entering the Garden of Eden. Now, just a few minute, minutes ago, we talked about how this is a devastating story. But for what we've read so far, this to me, this seems like a pretty good start. What's so bad about this? Well, I, there's actually a retelling of this story in the Bible. That makes the end of the story, their refusal to go into the land, not as surprising. So if you want, you can keep your finger in Numbers 13 and flip over to Deuteronomy chapter one. It's just the next book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter one, starting at the end of verse 19. Here, Moses retells this story 40 years later. He says, we came to Kadesh Barnea, And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This is the important part right here. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us, and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities in which we shall come. Keep that in mind. The thing seemed good to me. And I took 12 men from, from you, one man from each tribe. They turned and went up into the hill country. They came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. If you put Numbers 13 and Deuteronomy 1 together, What you see is that it seems like this initiative of the spies going into the land, it seems like that was the people's idea first. And then God allowed it, God permitted it. God sort of accommodates their lack of faith. He'll let them take a test drive of sorts, He'll let them go out and scope out the land just so that they can know this is the real deal. Now, when you know that background, it's not as surprising with how the story turns out because they don't start out on a really strong footing, do they? I'm not sure if you picked up on this, but did you notice if you flip back to Numbers 13, how God describes the land of Canaan? It's a very innocuous detail. Just chapter 13, verse two. God calls the land of Canaan. He says, the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel, right there. That description, that promise, that should have been enough. Why do they need a preview when they have a promise, a promise from God? My friend, if you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, it's, it's good to have you here. If, if you don't yet trust and follow God's son, Jesus, I wonder if it's because you just got to see more you need more of a preview than what you're getting. Well, my friend, you, you want to be the first. Jesus interacted with people like you and like me. But Jesus said that the only sign that he would give us is the sign of Jonah. And, and what was unique about Jonah? Well, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then he came out. Meaning the, the only thing that you need to know about Jesus is what's described about Jesus in his word. That we have eyewitness accounts encapsulated for us, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he physically rose from the dead three days later. And you have a promise from him that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. A believer in Jesus, I'm sure you say, I'm sure you give a hearty amen to something like God's word is enough. I'm sure all of us would give a hearty amen to that. There you go, yes. (laughs) Brother and sister, I want you to be able to live like it as well. To live like God's word is enough. It doesn't just have to be a nice slogan, it can actually be the foundation of your life. It could be the foundation of your faith and your stability. Friend, you do not have to base your stability on what is going on in your life right now. I know what's going on in some of your lives right now. If you base your stability on that, you will be very unstable. Because I know some of you just see in your life right now, you just see a job that exhausts you. You see a spouse that might be indifferent toward you. You see grief that's unending. You see sickness that's unrelenting. My friend, if you base your stability on that, that is sinking sand. But you can base your stability not on what you see, but on what God has said in his word. I love this hymn. How firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The words of Jesus, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You can build your life on what God has said, not just on what you see. God's word is enough. Now, before we go on, let me just get concrete for just a moment. We're talking about the promised land, Right? And the issue for the Israelites was, how do we know that this place is for real? And what they need is, they're not satisfied with God's promise. They need a visible preview. Ours is the promised land of heaven. And are we that different from the Israelites? We are not content with God's promise. We hanker after visible previews. There is even a movie and a best-selling book, literally called Heaven Is For Real. And the movie's made up, by the way. Because people are not content with God's promise. They want a visible preview. Because last time I checked, if I opened up the Bible and go to John 14, I hear my Lord and Savior promising me. To not let my heart be troubled, to believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, and that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. God's word is enough. We press on in faith by knowing God's word is enough. Second point, we press on in faith by focusing first on God by focusing first on God. So let's pick up back the story. The spies are back. Mission's completed. Now they give their reconnaissance report. They show the produce that they found. Look with me at 1327. They tell them, we came to the land which you sent us. The sound operator guy, if this was a movie, this was when the dark music would start playing. <laughs> because notice how they describe the land. The land to which you sent us, it's not the land the Lord our God is giving us. Continue in verse 27. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And the bottom drops out with one word, verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Geb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not well able to to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And we'll pause here. Here we we start to read of what becomes a back and forth volley between ten of the spies and two of the spies. The two spies are Caleb and Joshua. Let's just take a closer look at the report of the ten spies. Now, when they're making their case to the people, let's not go in. What are they focusing on? What's the basis of their case? They focus on the people who live there, right? Now, uh, my wife is a teacher. Uh, she's a, a special ed teacher. She has to analyze her students' behavior. I hear her and her coworkers say this word all the time and I, I haven't heard the word before. It's called perseverate, perseverate. To perseverate means you intensely focus your attention on one thought. That you can't stop. You can't think of anything else. Obviously, kids do that all the time. I think adults do that all the time, too. This is where the spies are at. They are perseverating. They are focusing on one thing. They are dogs with a bone. They can't think of anything else but these people in the land. And look what happens when they focus on the people in the land and nothing else. Look at what happens. It leads them to distort reality. Reality. When they focus on the people and nothing else, it leads them to see things as they aren't really are. They don't see things as they really are. Verse 32, they don't see the land as it really is. Verse 32, the land is no longer good. The land is now bad. It devours its inhabitants. They focus on the people and they don't see the people as they really are. They aren't just big. Verse 33, they're giants. The Nephilim are the giants back from Noah's day in Genesis 6. The Israelites call themselves insects compared to them. If you skip down to chapter 14, verse 2, they don't see God and his plan as they really are. They see the Exodus as a plan not to save them, but to kill them. They say they were safer as slaves in Egypt. And at this point, Moses and Aaron fall to the ground because they know how bad this is. Caleb and Joshua plead with them to reconsider, but they still don't see things as they are. They don't even see Caleb and Joshua as they are. Here they are making a righteous case to go into the land, but the people get ready to stone them. What is actually a righteous case they see as blasphemy. This was the stoning was the uh, the punishment for blasphemy. They focus on the people of the land and they distort reality. They don't see things as they really are. Now, before they can kill Caleb and Joshua, the Lord intervenes. He tells Moses, Moses, I'm ready to start all over again and make you a new nation, just like I did for Noah. And notice how God characterizes their action. Chapter 14, verse 11. God asks Moses, how long will this people despise me? Now you might say, "Just Steve, hold on a second. I didn't pick up any direct statement from the Israelites that say that when they said, you know what, we hate God now. You're right, they they never directly say that. They don't have to directly say that, they show it. They have said that they would rather die in the wilderness. They say that they would rather return to Egypt as slaves. They say we prefer either of those outcomes rather than going into the promised land. So, what they're really saying when they say those things? is that we would rather die, we would rather be slaves, than to trust God to keep his promise. You talk about devastating for a people who had seen so much to believe so little. Have you ever seen those Russian dolls? It's a series of dolls. They, they kind of look like eggs. It's a doll within a doll within a doll. You open them up, for are Think of the Israelites' action like that. Their biggest doll was their refusal to go into the land. But then you open that one up, and their refusal to go into the land comes from their focus on the people of the land. But then you open that one up too, and their focus on the people of the land actually comes from their distrust in the Lord. That's the core, that's the smallest doll. That's what the the center explains everything else. You see, when God became small to the Israelites, the people of the land became big. When they forget God and don't trust God, all that's left is themselves. And if it's just on them, then of course the land and the, the people of the land are too much. And this explains the difference between the ten spies and the two spies, doesn't it? How can the two spies be so confident? Caleb says, you know, yeah, you know we're able to overcome these people. Is it just because Caleb works out and you know, is on steroids or something, and he's bigger and braver? He's like Rambo? No. It's because the core is different. What's at the center is different. And then that, that makes the entire Russian doll different. You see, Caleb begins with trust in the Lord. He begins with a big view of God. Chapter 14, verse 8, he says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. That leads him to confidence when he looks out at the people. They are small to him. And that brings him to a willingness to enter the land. The the Russian doll is completely different because the core is different. So you see, friends, the, the core, what we start with is crucial what's at the very center of our hearts is crucial. It will shape the entire outlook of your life. What do you trust in at the deepest level? You get it wrong and it will change your entire outlook. The only way they would be willing and able to enter this land is if they start with faith in God. That would be the only way. The land couldn't be earned by effort the land could only be received by faith. Caleb and Joshua understood that. 14 verse 8, again, they say God will bring us into this land and give it to us. They see it as a gift to receive. The next verse, verse 9, lots of good there. Just want to focus. They say, don't fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. It's interesting. What's the bread that they're used to every day, all day? It's, it's the manna, right? The manna, the bread that comes down from heaven. Did they do anything to earn the manna? Did they work at Schwebel's down in Cleveland and put, up, put together the, the, the bread for the manna? No, the manna wasn't earned by their effort. It was received from God's hand. That's what they say about the land as well. We're not gonna earn this. We, we would receive it by faith. The only way we would get it if God is if God accomplished it. Let's just reflect on this for a minute and, and let's apply it to ourselves. I wonder, my friend, have you spent your entire life trying to measure up, but you can never really shake the feeling that you aren't enough? You know, this isn't original to me. I've shared it before. But by nature, we handle that feeling that we aren't enough either by compensating or by medicating. You know, either we are on this quest to compensate with how smart we are, with how beautiful we are, with how successful we are, or we handle this feeling that we aren't enough by medicating. Medicating with distraction, or with stuff, or with substance, or with pleasure. Like the Israelites, my friend, you can't enter the life you are meant for on your own efforts of measuring up. And the good news is that you don't have to. The good news is that someone measured up in your place. The good news is that God sent his son to live the life you didn't live, to die the death that you deserve, and to enter the life you were meant for takes trusting him. It doesn't take your effort. It takes receiving him by faith. Brethren and sisters, let's reflect on this on ourselves. We start with with trusting God first. That's the core. That will change our entire outlook. I wonder right now, have your problems become big to you? Have your problems, has has life become overwhelming to you? Have you tried to stop focusing, stop perseverating on your problems, but you just can't seem to do that? My friend, I hope this is some kind of relief for you. You don't have to control every outcome. You don't. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to fix every problem. You don't have to be the one who wins the battle. Please, my friend, remember God. And remember what God thinks of you because of his grace in Christ. Caleb and Joshua talk about it in verse eight. They say, if the Lord delights in us, it literally says, if the Lord smiles over us. My friend, if you trust in Jesus, you don't have to wonder if. You can know that God smiles over you that he is your father. Jesus assures us of this. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That that core is crucial, right? What we start with, it'll shape everything else. If we start with a trust in a big God, that will change how we look at the world in our lives. There's just one more way to reflect on this. How do we keep that core in place? I think this is where our focus becomes crucial. Just just hang with me for a second. I'm thinking about those spies again. When the spies went through the land, we're told the different places that they went. One of the places they went is a city called Hebron. Now, they came to Hebron, and they focused on its people, They came to Hebron and they focused on its power. They could have come to Hebron and focused on this is the place where their patriarchs are buried. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah, people from Genesis, their forefathers. If they focused on this, they could have said, where our forefathers lie, we soon shall live. They came to Hebron, they, they focus on its power, they focus on its people. What, what they didn't focus on is that this was the land that God promised them. Our focus can keep that core in place. Because, friend, you and I are like cars. If you drive on Grantwood, there are too many potholes on this street. <laughs> That if you take your hands off the wheel, you will not veer straight. You will veer into the side of the road, into somebody's mailbox. You need to be redirected. Your focus needs to be redirected. That is how this core stays in place. And God, the crazy thing is God knows this about us. God knows that we need to be redirected. I think one of the principal passages about this is Deuteronomy six. This is called the Shema. It, you, you'll hear it'll sound familiar. It's the Lord your God is one. Uh, therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then God goes on to list like, "Hey, you should teach this to your kids. Hey, you should hang like stuff up in your house. You should wear things that remind you of my commands. Even when you're walking, when you're sitting down, all the time, you should be redirecting yourself." to me because you just lose focus. You need patterns and habits that regularly redirect your focus on God. That is how you keep the kernel, the core in place. The Israelites are meant to press on in faith. They would do that by knowing that God's word is enough. They would do that by focusing on God first. They would do that thirdly by clinging to God's character and God's plan. This is point number three. Pick back up the story. We left off the story with God intervening to stop the Israelites from murdering Caleb and Joshua. God tells Moses, hey, Moses, I'm going to wipe out this people and I'm going to start over. But even though the people are ready to elect a new leader and kick Moses out, Moses still intercedes for the people like he's done before. And while, yes, God is angry at his people's rebellion, he doesn't have to say anything. He didn't have to say anything to Moses. Moses. God could have just showed up and did what he, was, he said he would do. It seems like God comes to Moses first in order to draw out of Moses this response. You know, for all the times Moses has complained about the people God has created in Moses, a man who has a tender shepherd heart. So in chapter 14, verses 13 to 19, this is Moses' appeal to God. Don't do this. Moses appeals to God, not based on the people. He doesn't tell God, hey, remember all the good times. No, there were not many good times. He appeals to God based on God. I like how one pastor organizes it. Moses' appeal boils down to two things. He tells God, God, remember what you said you would do. And God, remember who you said you are. It's his plan, it's his character. Moses tells God, God, remember, you said you would bring us into this land. If you don't, the nations around us will say, you aren't able to do that. Moses quotes God back to himself in verse 18. He quotes Exodus 34, we mentioned it last week. He says, God, remember who you said you are. You said you are merciful. You said you are slow to anger. You said you are abounding in love and forgiving, but by no means will clear the guilty. According to who you said you are, please forgive us. The way that you can press on in faith is if you cling to God's plan and to God's character. My friend, do you struggle to know how to pray? You could join the club. I struggle to know how to pray at times. Even kids in the room, do, do you struggle to know how to pray? Here is a beginning. Here is a start. That when you read the Bible, you see, you remember who God said he is and you remember what God said he would do. That's the beginning of prayer. So, my friend, when when you feel like you are at the end of the rope, ready to give up, you remember that God said a, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not stomp out. He will care for you at that time. When you see the church locally or globally being crushed or seemingly overrun, you remember that God said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. When you ask God, how can you let this happen to me? You remember that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You cling to God, working all things together for good. When you give in to sin again, you remember that Jesus, just as he saved you from the penalty of sin, so he will save you from the power of sin and one day will save you from the presence of sin. We press on in faith. Fourthly, lastly, by repenting in response to God's word. By repenting in response to God's word. In chapter fourteen, verse twenty and following, God does forgive, but when God forgives sin, He often doesn't take away the effects or the consequences of sin, and that's what happens here. No, He doesn't wipe out the Israelites, but ironically, He will give them what they want. They said that we would rather go back to Egypt. Well, God sends them on a route back to Egypt. <laughs> they say they were, we would rather die in the wilderness. Well, God says, that's what's going to happen. For the 40 days the spies spent in the land, they will spend 40 years in the wilderness. In all that time, everyone 20 years old and older will die off, all except Caleb and Joshua. Now, if you remember, Numbers began with a census of their army. It began with all of the guys 20 years old and older. And now it's ironic that census is no longer an army. It's an obituary. And to add to the irony, they said that their children would be like prey in the promised land. 1431, God says their children would inherit the land that they rejected. And after God tells them all this, the, the people are sad. Verse 39, chapter 14. They mourn greatly. They wake up the next day. They tell Moses, hey, we're ready now. We know we messed up, now you know. We, let's go in. Moses warns them, don't do it. It's not going to work. Why? Verse 42, the Lord is not among you. Well, they don't listen, they go in anyway, and sure enough, it doesn't work. They're defeated, they're pushed back, and the irony is laid on even thicker. When God assured them he was with them, they wanted no part of the land. And now when God said he's no longer with them, oh, well, now they want the land. (laughs) Friend, in in your walk with the Lord, you will stray, you will sin, and you will need to repent. Maybe you're here today and you know that you've really messed up recently. Maybe you've said some hurtful, hurtful things recently. Maybe you've been dishonest with your family or with your coworkers or with your friends. Maybe you've lost your temper. Maybe you have acted on your lust. And maybe you're at the point where you mourn over the sin. And if you're in that spot, maybe you think, well, you know what? This morning, I'm going to come to church and I'm going to start to make up for what I've done. My friend, please learn from the Israelites. Repentance is not first about making yourself feel better. Repentance is about listening and doing what God says. God tells you in his word to confess your sin to him. God tells you in his word even to confess your sin to someone else, to bring someone into it because you need help. Even the passage we read earlier today from Hebrews applies this very story. It says, it tells us to exhort one another every day while it is called today. You need help from somebody else to follow Jesus. Well, I, I remember one pastor saying, no one suffers from being overly encouraged. And then, my friend, God tells you to remember the blood of Jesus that cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And because you are forgiven, because you have the Holy Spirit, you can go forward and you can make no provision for the flesh, as God says. You can submit yourself to God and resist the devil, as God says. You can walk in the light, as God says. You can listen and do what God says. You can repent. Last week, we saw the Israelites make their first steps toward the promised land. As they entered the wilderness, we got to see what they would need in order to survive. This week, their story takes a devastating turn. They would not survive in the wilderness, at least not this first generation. They collapse at the finish line. You know, the only hope you and I have to cross the finish line and reach heaven is if someone else goes before us. A better Israel. Because Jesus pressed on in faith, we can press on in faith. Because Jesus remembered God's word is enough, we can remember God's word is enough. Because Jesus focused on God first, entrusting himself entirely to him, we can focus on God first, entrusting ourselves entirely to him. Because Jesus responded rightly to his Father's word, so we can respond rightly. God's Word. Because Jesus crossed the finish line, so will all those who trust in him cross the finish line. We press on in faith like Jesus by looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1-2, we'll close it here. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, the only hope we have to press on in faith in you is if your love toward us continues and endures. Please continue to move in us by your spirit. Please help us to continue to stand on your word alone, knowing that it is enough. Help us to stand on your promises. Lord, please help us to focus on you first. There are so many things that would pull us away. Help us to start with trust in you, the almighty God. Lord, help us to cling to your character and to your promises and to your plan, to who you said you are, and what you said you would do. God, help us to repent. To live a life of repentance. Of, of turning away from our sin. And turning toward you. Be glorified in us, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.